Good morning, church. It is good to be with you again this week. And uh, I know that uh, you had a treat with Brian delivering the word last week. I was very encouraged. I know you were. I've heard many of you say things about your, how encouraged you were and how uh, moved by the Spirit you were according to how the word was dealt. And we attribute that wholly and completely to the Lord himself. But we love it when he uses vessels uh, such as Brian and others who have graced this uh, pulpit over the many, many years of this church. So uh, thank you, Brian, for leading us in that word last week. And uh, we're going to start into a new phase, a new series of sermons for the next several weeks. So if you would turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. <coughs> it's not COVID, we're down the wrong pipe. <coughs> Before we get into this, let me just say that, uh, Philip, man, you just went way too far this morning. Early on, it was way too far. I love you, brother, but we can talk later. <laughs> um, listen, this, this, this part of Scripture, Matthew chapter 5, the first 12 verses, is often known as the Beatitudes. And um, I've never really understood that word. I understand what it means, but uh, I don't like the phrasing because I think that it denotes something about the Scriptures here that is less than what's intended. Uh, it's not just that you should, well, as some people might say, just to be these attitudes, right? To have these attitudes. Um, it's not just about attitudes here. I think it's much deeper, much fuller, much more beautiful, much more gospel-centered than this. And as our Lord is speaking to the disciples and therefore speaking to even us now, I think there's much for us to gain from going through this. In fact, I, I've heard a lot of people talk about how the words here in, in chapter 5, uh, verses 3 through 12 specifically, they always start with, blessed are those. And I've heard people take that word blessed and they've tried to turn it into the word happy. And at some level it does mean happy in some ways. Uh, but there's a guy named R. Kent Hughes that I liked and he, he gives this kind of a rebuttal to that. He says, blessed, in contrast to what many have said, does not mean happy. Happy is a subjective state of feeling. But Jesus is not declaring how people feel. Rather, he is making an objective statement about what God thinks of them. Blessed is a positive judgment by God on the individual that means to be approved or to find approval. So when God blesses us, he approves us. It is a pronouncement of what we actually are, in the eyes of the Lord, approved. I think that Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7, is a huge sermon that's meant to turn the idea of religion to the people he came to seek and save in the first step the Jewish people, the Israelites, to turn what they understood about faith and religion and take it and flip it on its head, to deal with us even as Gentiles in the same way. And so the things that they thought they understood about what it meant to be a follower of the one true God, he takes and he turns it on its head and does this kind of upside down rendering of what really is going on because people tend to so easily and quickly lose their way. It doesn't take long reading the Old Testament to find that what God originally intended, man tends to, to tweak and twist and pervert into something else. 
And so Jesus here seems to, in the first few verses especially, to give this generalized statement about what it means to be a Christian or about who we're supposed to be. And then the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is kind of unpacking that in various ways. And we're going to focus over the next eight weeks on these eight statements that start out, blessed or blessed are those who are X, Y, Z, whatever we're going to cover each week. I want you to think about something before we get there. I want you to think for a moment that maybe it wasn't just the Israelites 2,000 years ago that had lost their way on what it meant to be a Christian. I want you to think about that the most devoted people that could possibly be known in that era amongst the people would have been their leaders known as the Pharisees, the Zealots. And they were here talked to by Jesus, to his disciples and to them and to all the rest that were following that day. And he was trying to get across that you think things are just about the law or just about adhering to certain criteria. And he takes it, he turns the whole thing upside down. And so if we could take our friend R. Kent Hughes' advice here, we could think about it a little bit differently because all these things are talked about the kingdom. In fact, we know that this generalized statement here, verses 3 through 12, begin with a statement, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the last one ends in the same way. Look at verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This whole thing is about the kingdom. This whole thing is about who gets the kingdom and who gets to be in the kingdom. And at the very end, we see at the Sermon on the Mount at the end, he then talks about those who think they're going to be in the kingdom and they're not going to be in the kingdom and how dangerous this is because they're all going to think they're getting into the kingdom. But he's going to say things like, depart from me, I never knew you on the last day. The scariest verse to me in all of Scripture. I think it's of the utmost importance that we understand what this is about and the purpose here. And there's no easy, quick, quippy way to say it. I think my simplest way to look at it for myself is that these words here in these, what are known as the Beatitudes, are basically a summation of what it looks like to be made into the image of Christ. And so this means for every single person that puts their hope and faith in Jesus, we should be looking every year more and more like these statements. And if we do not, then we may not be who we think we are. And believe me, we all have this residual self-image of who we think we are. But what's more important is not who we think we are, but who does God say we are? Who does He say we are? And so I want us to break each one of these down, one verse or one, one beatitude per week for the next eight weeks. And let me just tell you that the first couple are going to be really difficult to take in. Not that the others aren't. It's going to be a lot of what I might uh, call toe-stepping, uh, a little bit of a kind of a slap to the face, a kick to the gut. That's how it's been for me. And I'm not here to beat you down. I'm here to deliver you to Jesus this morning in the way that we're meant to approach him. And the way that's listed first, which is blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let me pray for us before we go any further. Father, we, we have nothing to bring to you that you need from us. You are perfect, purely right and good, with no needs at all, not even our praise is necessary for your glory. 
you need nothing from us and we have nothing to offer that you don't already have or own or possess or exhibit. So Lord, we just want to thank you for the chance to be in your presence together this morning. And thank you, Lord, for sending us Jesus, who is everything we need. Thank you for loving us, even though we are sinners and rebels. Help us to be more like your son, Jesus, this morning and every day, for your glory alone. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's start in verse 1. I'm going to walk it down to verse 3, where we're going to hang our hat quickly, I might add. Just the setup of the settings. So seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, the kingdom of heaven belongs to the poor in spirit, so they are blessed. You see, that's the way we should see this. God approves the poor in spirit to inherit the kingdom of heaven. So it begs that we might understand if we are one of them, that we understand what it means to be poor in spirit. You see, the greatest problem in the entire Bible, and yes, there are problems in the Bible, but they're solved by the one who gave us his word. The greatest problem in the entirety of the Bible is that God saves anybody. Because there is none who have been created who deserve salvation. None who can earn it, none who can merit it, none who can power it, none who can muscle through or clean ourselves up enough to be worthy of it, none. Yet God saves anyway. Praise you, Lord. This is the core undergirding message of the scriptures for any who might believe. And if you think that this is too far, even in starting, just go to Romans and read the first three chapters and recognize that what God is doing through Paul is he's boxing us all in in chapters 1, 2, and 3 in Romans to show us we have nowhere to go except to the Lord for grace and mercy because we bring nothing to the table. So when we see these words, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, we have to understand what it means. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it in a way that helps me to recognize my place. Only the beggars are blessed with the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the beggars, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. To be blessed, we need to see ourselves the way God sees us and let the truth rule in our hearts. And by the way, Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. So he needs to rule in our hearts. And as he speaks truth here, we need to let it sink into our hearts and let us respond accordingly to that truth. But I believe that in our society now, it's no different than it was 2,000 years ago, that the greatest problem, not of the Bible, we've already talked about that, the greatest problem in us as Christians, in the church, in Israel, back in the day, is that we think too highly of ourselves. We think too highly of ourselves. If, if we would not do that, if by God's grace he would overcome that in us, all the rest of these would begin to fall in place. And all the things that we have and all the problems we have will begin to be put into alignment. 
It doesn't mean we would not endure hardships or sufferings, no, because that's how God changes us in some ways into Christ that we would never be otherwise changed into the image of him. But the problem is that we think too highly of ourselves. We can see this all over scripture. I'll just give you a couple of examples. Revelation 3, 17 through 18, as the letter to the church in Laodicea, it says this, for you say I am rich, talking to the church, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing, he says, you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so you may clothe yourself with, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Or one that we are very clear with, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned, miss the mark and fall short of the glory of God, which means we cannot enter into his presence and his glory and his joy because we've all sinned, summation of Paul's first three chapters of Romans. And I would argue that we are all beggarly poor in spirit. From the Greek here, it shows us this idea. Let me explain. The Greek word for poor comes from a verbal root form of this word that denotes this, to cower or to cringe like a beggar. This word conveys the idea not of needing some help, but that of utter destitution. Now, I've known folks that have needed help that I would not classify as a beggar. And I've met some folks in my life that I would classify in this way, that are utterly destitute. And the only help they have, the only way they have is by the mercy and grace of others. You could probably image that in your mind. This is a poverty so deep that one must obtain his living by begging. There's no other way they can do it. Think of the pictures in the scriptures of someone who's blind or lame and cannot do anything for themselves and they rely solely upon the mercy and grace of others. Fully dependent on the giving of another. Fully dependent on the mercy of God day to day. And if we do not think that this is us, listen to these words again. Blessed are the poor in spirit, the beggarly in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who realize nothing to the table, that we are spiritually bankrupt. We have nothing that God needs from us. We have nothing that can earn our way. We are beggars completely dependent upon the full mercy and grace of God and his gift to us in Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit that sustains us. Spurgeon helps us. I love Spurgeon. When I think that I've kind of understood something, he likes to sucker punch me as I read him. The Holy Spirit might be doing that. I quote him when he talks about this. He says, if the need of a broken heart is felt. In other words, if your heart right now is not broken over the truth that we are beggars spiritually. If the need of a broken heart is felt, we may come to Jesus for a broken heart if we cannot come with a broken heart. Often I do not feel like I'm a beggar. Often I do not sense that I need anything. But when the Lord pricks my heart or breaks me down, he's often more violent because I'm stubborn and prideful. In those times, he then gives us broken hearts because we rightly understand who he is and the greatness of a God who would love us as sinners 
when we are not righteous as we are commanded to be. And oh, then he makes the floodgates open of a broken heart. So let us come to Jesus today as worshipers who are beggars. It will change everything for us. Only the beggars are blessed with the kingdom of heaven. We are all powerless in ourselves. You may not like that phrasing, but if we had the power to save ourselves, we wouldn't need Jesus. His death would be unnecessary, and we know it was not. We are all bankrupt and, listen, helpless spiritually. We may not like this. It's important to understand it because we need to understand what do we really bring to the table except our great need? There's nothing that he gets from us he does not already have. Only the beggars are blessed with the kingdom of heaven. Listen, we, we are all morally unclean before God. The rest of the Sermon on the Mount proves this. When you go and read the whole thing, chapters 5, 6, 7, just go to the one just about lust for a moment. If you lust after someone in your heart, you've committed adultery, he says. Or if you have anger towards someone in your heart, you've already murdered them, he says. All of us are unclean morally. We're all unworthy of God's love and mercy. That means we do not deserve it. If we were worthy, Jesus' death wouldn't be necessary. It was so great of a chasm between us and God that Jesus had to come and bring us back together in his death on the cross. Only the beggars are blessed with the kingdom of heaven. We cannot win or earn God's approval, but we are in good company, if it makes you feel any better. We think sometimes of these massive heroes of the Bible, all of them fall into this category of spiritual beggars. Abraham, in Genesis 18, 27, in dealing with the Lord about Sodom and Gomorrah, he said, Behold, I have taken upon myself to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. You say, is I'm nothing but burnt up stuff. I'm worth nothing. I fall apart in the hand. David, Psalm 51, we're all familiar with this. After Bathsheba and his sin with her, and he murdered Bathsheba's husband. In Psalm 51, verse 17, it says this. David says, the sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, thou wilt not despise. And so we all agree that this is the spirit that pleases God after you were taken in adultery and murder. But what about the times when you are doing good? When you've had a good day, when you've done good things for the kingdom, even then, we are just as much beggars as the times when we fail the most. We're just as much in need in those moments. No matter how matured you are in the faith, we need Jesus just as much today as the first time that we met him. Completely and wholly and totally, we need that. Or how about John the Baptist, when he says, I baptize the water, but among you stands one whom you do not know, even he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am worthy to untie. He must increase, I must decrease. The question begs, could this be the reason why Jesus speaks of John and says, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Or in Mark 9, he says, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Or how about the Canaanite woman? Remember the woman that comes and asks Jesus for help? This is what he says, when Jesus at first refused her request for help since she was not a Jew, 
but she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And she said, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. You see, she realized the greatness of the Savior and her utter need to pick the crumbs off the table of her master. And he calls that great faith. This is where it begins, brothers and sisters. Not in our attainment of knowledge, not in our strength of character, but in our recognition and living in the fact that we are beggars at the table of the Savior, the King of the universe, and we do not deserve to be there. Yet by His grace, only beggars will enter the kingdom of heaven. How about the Pharisee and the tax collector? Remember this story? Listen to this. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. I don't know about you. Has that ever been you? It's been me before. Say it again. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Have you ever looked down on someone with disdain or with frustration? I have many times. So he's talking to me. Maybe he's not talking to you. He says, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. And pause there. You may be thinking, gosh, that guy's arrogant. Here what he says, he thanks God that he's not a criminal. He thanks God that he's not like these other bad people. That we, we pray prayers like that often. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Only the beggars will inherit the kingdom of heaven. Give you a few more in case it hasn't sunk into our hearts yet. Romans 7, 8. I know that nothing good dwells within me, that is, in my flesh. Paul says, I know nothing good dwells in me. 1 Corinthians 3, he says, I planted Apollo's water, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants or he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He's saying that nobody, even if you want to say the preacher plants or waters, I'm nothing. We're nothing before him. God is the one who gets the glory for it all. 1 Timothy 1, 15 through 16. I am the foremost of sinners, Paul says. If he was in our midst, we would almost want to bow down to him who wrote half the New Testament. The one who saved so many with the message of the gospel that God used. And this is what he says. I am the foremost of sinners. Listen, he says, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience for an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. 
We don't need revival meetings in Etowah County. We need to be the church that lives out this truth. And people will become to faith. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poverty of spirit is at the very heart of what true faith is. Listen to some of the times. John Wesley said, this is what he said. He said, I had a deep sense of the loathsome leprosy of sin, which he brought with him. That's what he's saying. This, I brought with me from my mother's womb, which overspread my whole soul and totally corrupted every power and faculty thereof. He said, I'm a sinner and everything is tainted by my sin. It's leprosy. Or William Carey. Do you know William Carey? He's the founder of the modern day mission movement. He took the gospel to the other side of the world, known world. And on his tombstone, it says this, by his request, born August 17th, 1761, died June 9th, 1834, a wretched, poor, and helpless worm. On thy kind arms I fall. Only the beggars are blessed with the kingdom of heaven. The blessed are those who come also to a blessed emptiness. To the very end of themselves. You see, one of the big distinguishing marks, I believe, in the Christian world versus the world that's not been saved and redeemed is that everyone outside of the church believes they can do it. That they can muster up the strength. They can try hard enough. They can overcome. They can succeed in and of their own power and validity. But the Christian realizes that we cannot. That anything we gain, anything we have, anything we attain has been only by the grace of God and the power of God, by the strength of God in and through us, not of our own volition. So every breath we take, because the Lord made our lungs work. Every second our heart beats, because the Lord squeezed it again to make it pump blood for us. We stay in his hands. We call him creator and sustainer, but do we really live in the truth? He sustains every moment of our lives. We are beggars, brothers and sisters. Beggars. Listen to this in Isaiah. You know the story, but listen closely. See the vision of Isaiah and hear his response. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. These are perfect beings. Perfect. Sinless beings. And even in the presence of God, they cover their eyes because they're not worthy to look upon God. And they cover their feet because that is the denoting part of their body that would say that they are dirty in his presence. Yet they are perfect. And they stand there and they say one call to another and said, Holy Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. That trihagion it's called. The holy, holy, holy is the Hebrew way of saying holiest to the nth degree. More than any other. So far as the east is from the west. Holier than anything else could possibly be holy. The definition of holy. And listen. The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Isaiah says, woe is me, for I am lost. In fact, I love the King James here when it says, for I am coming undone, coming apart at the atoms. 
I'm a man of unclean lips amongst the people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King. See, when we think that we are not beggars in need of complete dependence upon Him for His mercy and grace, it only takes one face-to-face encounter before He rights that wrong. And we get into place again. And we worship Him for it. We praise Him for it. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. It is nothing that we can do in ourselves. It is just this tremendous awareness of our utter nothingness as we come face to face with God. I say again, it is to feel that we are nothing, that we have nothing, and that we look to God in utter submission to Him and in utter dependence upon Him and His grace and His mercy. Later on, Isaiah says this in the 66th chapter. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Blessed are the poor in spirit, the beggars, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The more spiritually mature we become, the more profound will be our sense of spiritual poverty. That's why Paul can say, I'm the foremost of sinners. Thankfully, the Lord says that he is near to the brokenhearted and near to the crushed in spirit and saves them in Psalm 34. The hard truth is that no one can enter the kingdom of God without poverty of spirit or without being a spiritual beggar. If you think that you can, you've missed the first step of faith. The Holy Spirit, if you remember, when you first became a believer, if you are a Christian today, that the Lord impacted your heart and revealed to you that you could not and only He could redeem. That you could not earn it and only He has earned it on the cross. And you felt that and you experienced it and it brought you to joy, from weeping to joy. And yet we walk away at some point thinking we've got it down and we figured it out instead of we're totally dependent on him still. But blessed are those who find their complete hope and worth in Jesus alone. Listen, either Jesus has done it all or he's done nothing. Either Jesus has done everything you need or he's done nothing that you need. There is no in between. Jesus plus anything equals nothing in the gospel. If you add one single thing to the gospel, oh yeah, I've got Jesus and I'm a pretty good person. You've destroyed the gospel. If you say, oh, I've got Jesus, he saved my soul, yeah, yeah, but now I'm saving souls too and so God likes me for that. No, he likes you because of Jesus alone. The other is what we get joy in participating in his, his rule of the kingdom and his bringing others to faith. But God doesn't love us any more because of what we do or don't do than he loves us in Jesus. That love never changes. Does he sometimes discipline us because he loves us? Sure, just like I discipline my own children. But my love for them never changes. And I'm not even perfect. I'm sure it changes at times and I have to repent. His love never changes. And if his love is being cast on you in Jesus, it is yours forever and you need nothing more. And you should find your only hope in him. Nothing else. 
will bring you that love and grace and mercy. Nothing will secure your place in heaven except Jesus' death on the cross in your place. His blood shed for you. He paid it all. Or he paid nothing. There's no in between. We are poor beggars. But Jesus was rich in every single way. Listen to 2 Corinthians 8 9. Paul says it. For you know that grace, you know that grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. You see, we have nothing of ourselves, but he gives us everything. He even gave us his own life so that we could be with him. The blessed are the beggars who find their riches in Jesus. We are nothing and have nothing to offer God, but Jesus the one who's completely worthy and needs nothing. He gave up everything, even his life, in order to gain the one thing he did not yet have, didn't need, but did not yet have. You know what that was? Us as his brothers and sisters. We were not yet his. Listen to the words of Hebrews 12. Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The joy set before him was to honor the Father and to rescue brothers and sisters. Rebels, enemies, turned brothers and sisters by the grace of God through the blood of Jesus on the cross. We are a part of that joy that was set before him. And if we will come to him as beggars, we can find complete joy and fulfillment in him. But if we do not approach that way, we will always be lacking and always be looking for something else to fill us. So whenever he's not enough, it's because we don't recognize our place in our need for Jesus. And it's time to run back to him once again and ask him to break us down. Lord, reveal to me the need, why you sent your son. Lord, reveal to us the depth of our depravity, so that we might see the greatness of your Son, Jesus, and we might praise you and walk in glorious humility before you as beggars. You see, the world around us will not change because we are perfect. The world around us will not be impacted because we look better than they do. The world around us will be impacted when they see people that are utterly dependent beggars upon the mercy and grace of God every moment of every day, and it oozes out of us. So let us proudly proclaim that we are beggars. There's nothing good in us except Jesus Christ our Lord, so that he's proclaimed in everything, so that he alone gets the glory. This is where we will find our greatest joy. That's why it's upside down. That's why it sounds crazy. The Pharisees thought, if I just did all this stuff, people look at them and they think, look, they've made it. I want to be like them. And we need to say, no, you don't want to be like me. You want to be like Jesus. You see something good in me? It's Jesus. Jesus alone. Not me, not what I've done, but Jesus alone. And when I fail, you go, yeah, that's the sinner I know. And I promise you, I will fail. We will fail. Jesus will not. Jesus overcomes failure. Jesus overcame death, sin, Satan, and hell, failure, and sickness, and disease on the cross because he loves us that much, even when we are beggars. My grace 
is sufficient for you, he says. My power is made perfect in weakness. So Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You see, have we made mistakes? Yes. But Jesus overcomes. Are we going to fail again? Yes. But Jesus brings us hope because he's already paid the price to bring us into his family. And one day he's coming back to take us home. See, only the beggars are blessed with the kingdom of heaven. I'll give you one more quote. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he admonishes us, and I admonish you with these words. Pretend like it's me saying it. No, it's not, Jones. And listen to this as an admonition. Look at him again. Look at Jesus again. Then you will have nothing to do with yourself. It will be done. You cannot truly look at him without feeling your absolute poverty and emptiness. And then you say to him, nothing in my hand I bring simply to the cross I cling. Empty, hopeless, naked, vile, but he is the all-sufficient one. Yes, all I need in you I find, O Lamb of God, I come. And I beg you today, come back to Jesus like that. Let us repent of our pride. Let us repent of our stoicism. Let us repent of our stature. Let us repent of our placement. Let us repent of our knowledge and of our greatness or our grandeur or our better-thans. And let's return to being the poor in spirit, for we will then inherit the kingdom of God, brothers and sisters. Only the beggars are blessed in the kingdom of heaven. So come to Jesus and find your hope today. So come to Jesus and find your joy today. Come to Jesus and find the hope and joy that will carry you through until the king comes back to take us home. Come to Jesus right now. Today, do not wait, do not tarry, do not put off one more minute. I'm not talking to just the lost people. I'm talking to all of us. Let us return to the throne, to the feet of Jesus daily in this moment. And listen, I open up this altar all the time, and I don't expect anybody to come down here at any point. You don't have to come down here to repent of your sins or to get in a place of right posture before the Lord. It could be standing, arms raised. It could be kneeling. It could be sitting. It could be up here. But here's what I need to tell you. If the Lord moves in your heart to repent, to get on your face, to get on your knees, to throw your hands up, to stand stoically as tears roll down your face, you obey the Lord. Because we are His fully, or we are His not at all. So let us turn to the Lord today. Poor in spirit to a gracious, great Redeemer who has paid the price. He paid it all on the cross for us. Lord, we need You and Your mercy and Your grace right now. Every moment, Lord, we need You. You have paid the price necessary for our sins to bring us into your family. Lord, we, we forget all too often the glory of Jesus, of the fame of Jesus, of the 
necessity of grace and mercy, of your steadfast love that you can pour out on us, of the power of your Holy Spirit. But Lord, help us today to repent and turn to you for your kingdom's sake, for your son's fame, for your own glory, for you alone deserve it. And we are but beggars who've been brought into the kingdom to be your sons and daughters. Thank you, thank you, thank you for Jesus.